1: Welcome to Before They Were Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation about the Disney animated canon in chronological order. Today we are discussing the 13th movie, Lucky 13. It's 1951's Alice in Wonderland. This movie has obtained status as something of a cult classic among those who prefer the more surreal side of the Disney canon, although at the time of its release it was a bit of a disappointment. I'm your fellow student and friend, Josh Altman-Shofer, and with me, as always, is Dr. Michael Farmer, who later we'll call Tortoise, because he taught us. He doesn't want to go among mad people, but he can't help that. Most everyone's mad around here. You may have noticed that I'm not all there myself. How are you doing, Michael?
0: I'm pretty good, Josh.
1: So the story I've heard, which is possibly apocryphal, is that uh, It's a Wonderful Life. The Christmas Christmas movie was such a flop that no one renewed the rights for it, and so then the TV stations were able to play it without royalties and therefore played it constantly. And then that's how it became a classic. So I'm wondering if we have a similar thing going on with the Alice stories from Lewis Carroll because uh, they are in the public domain and they have been for years and years and years. And there are a million uh, different Alice stories. Like it seems like one of the most popular things to do is to do a uh, adventure into Wonderland. Um, do you feel like? that is uh, the case or do you think it would stand on its own even if it was not in the uh, public domain
0: yeah well I mean it's it's part of that whole first wave of children's literature the the Victorian era has uh, many many great children's stories it's I'm, I'm not an expert on the era I think I've probably talked about this before but in some ways the Victorian era invents the child it invents childhood as a special time of life that deserves its own attention um, so I, I think, I, I think part of what we're dealing with is Alice in Wonderland taps into that. And so a lot of what we think of as classic children's literature comes from that time. Although, uh, Alice in Wonderland is pretty weird, even for late 19th century children's literature, don't you think?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely different. <laughs> I, I started reading the, the originals, um, just in preparation for the show. I didn't get all the way through them, uh, but they are. Uh, well, you know, I think a lot of it comes from that sort of um, that storytelling mode where you can tell that somebody was, was kind of telling these stories to a kid and making them up as, the, as they went along. And there's not a lot of editing or a lot of necessarily need for uh, complete coherence and things like that. And then they go back later and write them down and um, maybe they, they try and maintain some of that, uh, you know, just off the cuff manner. It kind It kind of feels that way. I remember um when we read uh Pinocchio it had a similar sort of feel you know it was given it was I mean this is much better than Pinocchio the the books I mean are much better than the Pinocchio novel but uh, that kind of serialized feel you know Certainly yeah. yeah
0: and the movie really gets that right that this movie is more episodic than any of the other single narrative movies we've watched so far
1: Yeah Um,
0: I have not read the original books. I, I mean, I think I may have read them when I was a kid, but I don't remember much about them. The other side of the weirdness of those books, though, is that they're written by a logician, and he's satirizing a bunch of stuff that doesn't make sense to us anymore. So there's a lot of, like, from my understanding, logic in jokes and then social satire that unless you're a Victorian scholar doesn't read as satire to you so i I think that also explains some of the weirdness of those books but again they are written for children right for alice little in particular
1: right so as i was reading them i kind of felt that way i was like i feel like i'm missing something like some of the some of the jokes i got and definitely the puns um are are a little easier to catch uh still but the yeah the the victorian era type things I'm not (laughs) I am not a Victorian scholar so I feel like I was missing a bit of that whereas the movie I feel like um is you know Disney was criticized at the time of Americanizing this you know classic English tale and um you know doing what he does with you know with all these stories you know just yeah you know the the common criticisms that we we seem to continually bring up about with Disney of you know just kind of um Making them accessible to a large audience, but I feel like as weird as this movie is, it's much easier to follow and understand what's happening and what the jokes are and, and those sorts of things than, than reading the book.
0: Yeah, and I, I, like I said, it's, if I've read the books at all, it's been 30 years since I read them, and so, um, I don't remember if they're unapproachably British or not. Do you, is that, is that the way you experience them? Do they feel overly British to you?
1: Uh, I don't know that it was overly British as much as, um, just that kind of older there's it hadn't quite the modern books seem to I don't know if they I, I don't know the way that I would would describe it um maybe you might have a better feel for this than I do reading old old literature versus newer literature but there's there's something in the modern literature where they uh I don't, it just feels more cohesive to me in a way than than older than older novels do sometimes. I don't know the children's literature especially. I think not necessarily beyond that.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, it would be. We really should next time we talk about something Victorian, which I, well, I guess uh, Peter Pan is Edwardian, but that's close enough. We really should think about having a Victorian on here to tell us about like what childhood looked like in Victorian England, because I, I know I, I know that something important happened culturally, but that's about as far as I can tell you happened. I, have we talked about this on this show before? This is one of my like go-to cultural spiel's, so maybe maybe we ha- maybe I haven't done it here. But like you know, the 1950s invents the teenager. Teenagers don't really exist as a separate stage of life in, until the 1950s. The the first decade, maybe the first decade and a half of the 21st century invents the emerging adult, the the 20-something who moves back in with her parents. That, that didn't really exist uh, culturally before that moment. From my understanding, Victorian England does something very similar with the child. It's not like there weren't children, of course, but the idea that, like, childhood was a time of life that needed to be paid attention to and that special books needed to be written for children, I, I think that was pretty much a 19th century invention.
1: That makes some sense to me. Um, just, I wonder about, like, so... <laughs> uh i'm you know back in the states and visiting and this is a little bit of a tangent but we went to a a plantation in south carolina that you know is on a south carolina park and the the park ranger there was giving us a tour of the place and talking about the people who lived in this in this plantation and they he had uh he and his two wives i think um the one had died in childbirth and then the second wife. I, think I was going to ask though, if they were
0: concurrent. Yeah, no,
1: no, no, no. Yeah, that's what I, I realized as I was speaking that it's it, not making a lot of sense. But anyway, yeah. They, so you know, All all together, I forget how many kids he had, but it was a ridiculous number to modern years, right? It was something like, I don't know, 18 kids or something. But only three or four of them lived to adulthood. Like, right. the child morality rate was just incredible. So I wonder if, you know, it advances in... Um, Child mor- morality rates – mortality, excuse me. <laughs> mortality led to child morality maybe where we had to start yeah. <laughs> you know, teaching children morals. I don't know. Um, I, I, don't I, know think
0: that, a, I think that's an interesting point. And, and so you, I, I think that that has to be part of it, right, because um, – it would be hard to romanticize, no no pun intended, although I think it's an appropriate word. It would, it would be hard to romanticize childhood if most people didn't make it through childhood. The other thing I think that's probably happening, and again, this is a total shot in the dark. I am not a Victorianist. I am not a cultural studies person. Um, but... Uh, I I think the other thing that must be happening is that people have more money and there's a leisure class, a a middle leisure class, where, uh, you know, the kids aren't going to have to work on a farm as soon as they're seven years old, which is what I suspect happened for much of human history. So all of a sudden you get kids who are not expected to work like adults almost immediately. And so um, at least for middle class children, they need something to entertain them.
1: Yeah, that all makes sense to me. So, um, yeah, it'd be interesting to know, uh, you know, Alice Liddell and and her sisters, how much of what um, Lewis Carroll was, you know, was giving them they were they were enjoying and how much it was just kind of going over their heads. Because as I read this book to my to my oldest daughter, I don't know how much she was getting of it. You know, like I think she was getting basic plot points, but kind of the puns and the jokes and that sort of stuff I I don't know if he was if if kids were just that much more clever or if uh he was you know or you know how much the culture you know they expected that or if he was just entertaining himself and the kids happened to be along for the ride (laughs) I don't know well I I think we have
0: to use the n-word here which is nonsense what what kind of what kind of taste does your daughter have for nonsense
1: yeah, there you go. That that is true, and I think that's that's a good point because that's that's where the movie begins, right? Is that she Alice is listening to her history lessons, and she she suddenly uh, comes upon the idea of she would rather live in a world of nonsense, um, and that in the, in the world that she invented, it would be nonsensical. So, and the cat is very confused by that.
0: <laughs> Even the cat is bound to. Human reason. And again, I mean, that, that's that's another interesting thing that this comes from a logician, right? Because if there was one group of people you would not immediately expect to be interested in nonsense, it would be logicians. But maybe immersing yourself all day in formal logic actually makes you more interested in nonsense. I don't know. Um, and, and again, not a scholar of that era, not a scholar of children's literature in general, but my kind of groping-in-the-dark impression of early children's literature is there's a great deal of nonsense to it. I have read um, Peter Pan, and Peter Pan is absurd. Like lots of lots of scenes in that book don't make any sense because they're operating on this kind of weird childhood dream logic, and and at least the movie Alice in Wonderland certainly works on that same dream logic.
1: I, so I guess it makes the it makes the story maybe a little uh, harder to to be the thing that you grab onto but yeah there's not really a
0: story right it's just it's it's a series of set pieces
1: yes but with the with the movie they really i feel like they they knocked it out of the park it you know with with not having a lot of story to deal with they really did a great job on the set pieces um the music i think in this is wonderful the way it looks i think is wonderful um so uh the it's like an all-star cast of the, you know, Disney, um, you know, voices that you just instantly recognize. It's like, oh yeah, they do they do several Disney characters. You know, yeah. J. J- um, Pat
0: O'Malley is in it. Sterling Holloway, uh, Verna Felton, who we talked about last time, is the the uh, the Red Queen, Queen of Hearts.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I I do think that in that they they easily make up for it in the movie.
0: Yeah, there's there's a lot uh, there's a lot about this movie to recommend it. I think, but plot is not one of them. Not one of those things. This is this is a movie that you could easily dive in and out of and not really miss anything because it's it's so episodic, and uh, the episodes really until the very end don't really get connected to one another. I mean, there's some reoccurring characters. The Dodo shows up early on and then comes back about halfway through. But for the most part, you could dip into any of these episodes without knowing anything about what's happening and not be any more lost than anybody else, uh, such such as the power of nonsense.
1: Right. And I was I was wondering if that was kind of how we wanted to, to run through this movie, was just kind of by talking um, – through the characters because there are so many and each of them is, is, you know, memorable in their own way. Um, And I feel like by talking about the characters, you're going to get basically the entire plot because there isn't much plot there.
0: Absolutely. Where where do you want to, you want to start with Alice?
1: Yeah, we should start with Alice because she's, you know, she uh, obviously is the, the, the one central character that carries all the way through. um, And also, you know, we we start with her. We end with her. Um, she has that first song um, to herself before she's even entered Wonderland. So she, yeah, she is, she is
0: also probably the movie's closest thing to a sane character. Everybody's mad at me, except maybe her. She she seems to think of herself as kind of zany and madcap. And if all of this is coming from her imagination, maybe she has a point. But she's really the only thing in this movie that ties us to the world of you know reasonable human society
1: right and i think there was quite a bit of struggle of getting the movie made i I meant to mention here before we get too far into the actual movie that um this was this was at the studio longer than anything else disney was disney was working on alice things before he even you know had his own studio he was working at it um working on alice things at the back in Kansas City at the I forget the name of the animation studio he was working at there. Um so this has been something that's been <laughs> on his mind for years and years and years. I think he acquired the rights in 1932. Um and this movie comes out in 51. So it's been sitting around and bouncing around the studio for about 20 years and part of the problem was um that Alice is the straight man and there's there's just not much to her character. He even brought in um, Aldous Huxley at one point. Oh right, now, How bizarre and, to, is that? <laughs> to try and put a script together. So, I want to live in the uh,
0: world where the Aldous Huxley Alice in Wonderland Disney feature got made.
1: Yeah, I mean, wouldn't that be something? I would. Yeah, I would. Well, I, would I mean, it would—it would
0: certainly connect two of the great centerpieces of na- late 1960s psychedelic culture. Because, I mean, one thing, one thing we haven't mentioned yet is this movie was a flop when it came out. The reason it's a classic is that uh, it got picked up in the late 1960s by the counterculture who see it, I think, quite reasonably as a drug movie. Uh, w- watching through it, I, I was trying to imagine what the animators had in mind if they weren't thinking about drugs because so much of it is so druggy but um you know aldous huxley wrote the doors of perception which is a a book about drug use and the source of the band the doors their name so if he had indeed written the the final version of this script it really would have put a bow on uh 1960s drug culture borrowing from the 40s and 50s
1: yeah, you know, reading through kind of what he was working on, it reminded me more of uh, the – I think the, there's a um, A recent Peter Pan movie that did this where it focuses more on the author and the storytelling, and then it, it goes into the story from that. I think the, the Disney movie that came out recently that I did see and not just saw the trailers for, um, Saving Mr. Banks – kind of did the same thing where they focused on uh the the relationship of um the author and her father uh and her as a child and and those sorts of things to get into the world of mary poppins um it seemed like he was kind of taking that angle where it was kind of it was about lewis carroll and alice liddell and then into the world um from there um was was my understanding but I don't know how progr- how much progress was actually made on that on that version of the movie.
0: Yeah, I, I I don't I knew he I knew he wrote a script, but that's as far as my knowledge of it goes. So. That's interesting. You don't you wouldn't you wouldn't see that. I mean, obviously the script was still being written in 1945 for what animated movies did, but that's not that's not a a move. I think we would associate with animated movies. It's a it's a it's a movie you would associate with adult biopics.
1: Right, and I don't know if. It was even, I mean, I think Disney went back and forth for a long time on if, if this was going to be a combined, um, animation and live action thing. Um, I think that was, you know, an idea for a while. I think he ended up, um, focusing on Song of the South for that instead and, uh, going a different direction, but, uh, before finally deciding that this would be just an animated feature. So, um, that was actually one of the criticisms of this movie and also, I mean, kind of the movies going forward for a few years, I think they're in a bit of a, um, they're feeling the loss of Disney, the man, even though he's still at the company. He's just kind of, I talked about this in a previous episode, like he's just kind of not engaged in the way that he was with Snow White. And I feel like they haven't really found their new narrative anchor person uh, at this time. So nobody knows quite what they want to, you know what they want this movie to be and i think that's part of you know the that's definitely one of the criticisms of the movie was that um there was too many cooks in the kitchen basically you know too many people trying to uh each each director of each little um episode uh, because there was different ones for each one was trying to outdo the others and so it just kind of created a flatness of the movie there's not a lot of Dynamic up and down you know it's just from crazy nonsensical to crazy nonsensical
0: yeah I think that's a good reading because i I enjoy this movie for about 45 minutes but there's another half hour after that and 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 so i I, I can see that because I do get I do get kind of weary of the movie before it's over because it's it's just scene after scene after scene with with no payoff really it just it just keeps flipping.
1: Right, which is which is something to say about a movie that's only seventy five minutes long, right? So right, um,
0: and and you know, and the thing is, I don't think I could tell you a scene I would like you to pull because I mean, the last half hour of the movie is given over to all the stuff with the Queen of Hearts, which is iconic, and there's lots of really funny stuff, but it's it it just it ends up it ends up being fatiguing by the time you get there. I think.
1: Yeah, I feel like, uh, to answer that question, I would pull the walrus and the oyster bit. <laughs> really? Um, well, I enjoy it. I mean, I really, I like it, but it would, it's almost, it's like a short. Like, it, it doesn't really connect to the rest of what we're seeing in the movie, I don't think, unless I'm missing something.
0: Well, and, and here's, here's where we'll get back to Alice. So, to, to me, the key to understanding who Alice is in this movie is that she is continuously. Reciting these, uh, bourgeois Victorian moral messages that she's getting from her schooling. She, so she's constantly saying that one needs to look before one jumps or one might find oneself. So, so she uses that language, right? It's, it's it's the language of her moral instruction. So she's she's kind of fighting against it, and that stuff be, ends up being not very useful, right? Or she ignores it. So either it would have been useful and she doesn't listen to it, or it just has no, no uh, use whatsoever in the the nonsense world of wonderland the the walrus and the carpenter story is the one place where the movie explicitly attaches a moral to what's going on which is uh curiosity gets you into trouble right but then at the end um alice says that it has a very good moral if you happen to be an oyster so she she has completely disregarded the central premise of The Walrus and the Carpenter, which is, you know, at least as Tweedledee and Tweedledum see it, the, the the premise is you need to stay in your oyster bed instead of instead of wandering, and then she continues to wander. So in that sense, I think it does tie in. I'm not sure if that justifies the sequence. I just think the sequence is amazing, uh, with really a bravura performance from J. Pat O'Malley as The Walrus.
1: Well, I think I think your point is really good and valid because uh, there's a, in in some of the uh, promotional material uh, for for the movie, Disney's talking about what sets Alice apart and he talks about how children are more complex and curious than an adult and um, whereas his previous two heroines Snow White and Cinderella were more interested in romance, Alice is curious about everything and they were really trying to capture that curious childlike quality of uh, with Alice, and so I think having her I think you're right that this is this is a character building moment for her as much as any other part of the movie is having her say that line, well, yeah, it's a really great moral if you're an oyster uh and then and then going on about being curious so.
0: yeah she she does not learn the lesson, although again, whether that justifies if you if you don't think the sequence belongs there, I'm not sure that's a good enough argument for it being there, but uh I mean, that's the sequence I remember from when I was a kid.
1: Oh, that's really interesting. The the ones I remembered from a kid was the unbirthday party and sure. then the uh the croquet um scene. The, the, I three, the three I bit.
0: remember well are the uh the walrus and the carpenter, the unbirthday party, and then uh the car- the caterpillar.
1: The druggiest oh, yes, the, the druggiest thing yes. in the film. Yeah, the caterpillar is great. Yeah. All right. Well, Were you annoyed you more-
0: did you find yourself annoyed by Alice? I, when I was a kid, it never occurred to me because it, it, when you said children are naturally more curious, it, it made me think of this, that what what she was doing seemed completely reasonable to me when I was a kid, as far as I can remember. But watching it again, I just I wanted to grab her and say, uh, why are you why are you putting yourself in danger by following this white rabbit? Like, e- even if you're going to be in Wonderland, there's so many more interesting things than this white rabbit who's late for some appointment that you don't know about. Were you? Were you? Did you? Did you find yourself annoyed by her, or, or did it all make sense to you?
1: <laughs> I don't know if it all made sense to me. Uh, I didn't. I didn't find myself annoyed by her. The the actually, the, I I feel very bad for the white rabbit, particularly in the uh, the unbirthday scene. They destroy also, his watch. <laughs> yeah, where they destroy his watch. I remember that making me deeply uncomfortable as a child. It's like, very sad. Why are they? Why are they destroying his watch? Oh dear. And, and yeah, and I I I still like that came back to me as I was watching it. They do the same thing with his house. The yes. Dodo's ready to burn his house down, and so yeah, the poor white rabbit is the one who I felt for the most. And we leave movie. we I,
0: leave before it happens.
1: Right. So, so and you just
0: imagine him going home after this ridiculous day he's had, and and getting there, and his house <laughs> is burned to cinders.
1: Yeah, I I don't remember the, I don't remember the uh the, the house scene. From, from watching it as a kid, but the, the watch the watch scene really stuck with me. As soon as it came on again, I was like, oh, I, I really remember this. I really remember feeling deeply uncomfortable when I watched this.
0: Yeah, it's very sad, but it's not played to be sad. I don't know. Maybe kids can just handle that better than adults. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I guess they can. Did your, did your
0: children watch this with you? You said you were reading it to them.
1: Yeah, so we watched it today. I was going to try and get them on the podcast, but then after... Uh, they watched it. I I was like, okay, can I ask you guys some questions for the podcast? And they're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, they told me a few things, but they wouldn't let me record them. So so they weren't they
0: afraid or sad or confused. Um,
1: no, the yeah. So they I think they were a bit confused, like they're which they usually are the first time through a movie. So the first time through the movie, they always watch it a little more uh, tense than any other time. So. We recently watched My Neighbor Totoro, which nothing happens in that movie. Like, absolutely nothing. I love it, but nothing happens. But the entire time, they are so programmed to look for conflict in the movie that they 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 were on the edge the whole time, like, wondering, like, well, is now this going to happen? Is now this going to Like, they kept inventing uh, potential catastrophes that could happen to the little girls in My Neighbor Totoro because... That's just how they're programmed. Like, you know, every movie is that way where there's a conflict of some kind. So, anyway, I, I think anytime they watch a movie for the first time, they're a little more tense than normal. But uh, yeah, they found the um, my young my not my youngest youngest, but the youngest one who watched it, the four-year-old found the when she fell down the hole, she thought that was hilarious. She giggled through that whole thing, which I thought was funny. And then they didn't really have a lot more verbal reactions until the Queen. They didn't they didn't like the Queen. They were worried about what was gonna happen to Alice when they met when she met the Queen. And uh, but then they did laugh when the Queen gets turned over and you see her heart underpants and all that. A so. classic. Yes. So
0: Painting
1: the roses red, and many a tear we shed. Because we know they'll cease to grow. In fact, they'll soon be dead. Oh, and yet we go ahead, painting the roses
0: red. Painting the roses red, we're painting the roses red. Oh, pardon me, but Mr. Three, why must you paint them red? Huh? Oh! Well, the fact is, this, we planted the white roses by
1: mistake. Ah. Anyway, we should get back to. <laughs> we were going to go through the characters, and here I ended up at the
0: end of the movie. So.
1: My apologies. Well, we did start um, with
0: Alice, so she goes all the way through.
1: That's true. Yeah. So, do you have anything else you wanted to uh, to say about Alice?
0: Uh, I might have something later, but I want to. We should. We should
1: wait. Okay. Yeah i have a I have a. Kind of some some closing questions um, on her as well, so we will wait. Okay, so the next character that we kind of meet is the rabbit, who we also talked about a little bit. Um, she sees him running through in a very nice, nicely done. Uh, you know, the thing that animation is so good at. You know, she she hits the ripple in the water, and all the all Alice turns into just kind of blocks of colors as the water ripples through her and then as the the water unripples back together all those colors turn into the rabbit running i think that was a really really nice opening scene
0: yeah it was uh, in the movie
1: um,
0: rabbit played by bill thompson who yeah. um, we will meet many times he is mr smee in peter pan he's uh, jock in lady and the tramp he's king hubert in sleeping beauty uh, so he's he's a he he is familiar to to all disney fans he's also the voice of droopy dog who is not disney but oh okay you know
1: i I probably do i'm not, do- not remembering
0: no that's a ter- <laughs> that's a terrible impression I'm sorry i'm so sorry good lord you know droopy he's sad he's like a he's yeah. like a basset hound
1: good right. lord the sad, yeah the sad dog <laughs> Anyway, he does a wonderful job as the rabbit. Um, Catchy little song he sings. There's so many songs in this movie. I mean, they're more than any other,
0: more than any other Disney feature. In fact, it's funny because I remembered almost none of them because they're all these very short songs. Many of them with undistinguished melodies.
1: Right, but I love it. I feel like the music in this movie. I I don't know if it's because it's just all the way through or. if it's just the orchestration or what i just i feel like this is the best music we've had so far but none of the singles so i was trying to think of like an analogy for this which you, i'm sure you'll you'll rescue me here i'm counting on you to rescue me so don't. No. Oh. um, um <laughs> what's the uh what's a good analogy of a band who's like best album but doesn't have all like their best known singles on it like I, that's how i kind of feel about this like this is the best album but it doesn't have all the top singles.
0: It's uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band.
1: There you go. There you go. That's Thank you, Michael.
0: You're welcome. <laughs> well, you sh- I should have said our band. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have any good albums either, though.
1: That's not entirely true. Yeah.
0: So, so my favorite song, and this is one of my favorite Disney songs, is the song The Flowers Sing, All in the Golden Afternoon. Yeah, um, and I don't know lovely. that I can explain to you why I love it, except I just do. It's 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 a very languid, relaxed song. It's uh, I don't know. I dig that song.
1: I really like it. I like that whole flower scene. Um, I I felt like my two big laugh out loud moments in the movie were in that flower scene because uh, there's a moment where all the all the song all the sorry all the flowers are warming up their voices uh, to sing this song. And it's all the ladies doing their la 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 la's, and then there's a, there's a a deep one that comes in. It's just perfect comedic timing, and it's just you know dum 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 or whatever he says. It's uh-huh. really funny. And then the other one is uh, when they're trying to figure out what Alice is, what kind of flower she <laughs> Did is. Did you ever <laughs> see an Alice? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then uh, one little flower bud says, uh, "I think she's pretty," and they say, "Quiet, bud." <laughs> <laughs> I, in my notes, I wrote uh flowers
0: right out of the elephant handbook
1: yeah, they did remind me a lot of the of the elephants from dumbo that's that's exactly it very the very gossipy sort of uh trope there i guess
0: but To to return to the White Rabbit, because obviously there's just no way we're going to stay on topic, Um, (laughs) but to to return to the White Rabbit, I I think he's important in the movie because he's the foil for Alice. Alice is largely unflappable. She cries a couple times, but mostly she doesn't really react strongly to things. She keeps her cool. The White Rabbit is just in a constant panic about God knows what. And also he doesn't really seem to have thought anything out because if he's late to get to – the Queen's Palace. It seems like he wouldn't have to detour through the Mad Tea Party, but maybe he did. Maybe the roads don't really go anywhere uh, in Wonderland.
1: Yeah, he's an interesting, interesting character. And then he's he ends up being like the herald of the of the Queen and the King. As he always says, uh, very comedically. Um, so, yeah, depending. I I don't know. I I. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know how I feel about about that once once we get there but uh that's what that's what he ends up being late for is he you know he has to please the queen who's obviously a maniac so
0: he's complicit to use uh twenty eighteen's favorite word
1: <laughs> that's right yeah i was I wasn't sure how political I wanted to go here, but we could draw some parallels between uh you know people who people who work in our in our government and uh should they should they continue working or should they they protest by quitting their jobs and all those sorts of things. So.
0: Then again, what what has the white rabbit ever done to recommend himself to anybody? Do, do you know what I mean? I like I don't understand her fascination with him, and it's not like he does anything that would make us like him. He's cute, I guess.
1: Well, I, yeah, and then he get, he confuses Alice for somebody, a Marianne, who I don't know who Marianne would be, but he's looking for Marianne, and then he finds Alice and assumes it's her. And
0: In the book, orders. apparently Marianne is his housemaid.
1: Yeah, something like that. But
0: I think it's so much funnier if they don't explain it, like if there's no context <laughs> for that whatsoever.
1: I, Which I think, is how the movie does it. There yeah, is no
0: context whatsoever. I so. think that's much better. Marianne! <laughs> I think that's much better,
1: yeah, so <laughs> he's got a very nice waistcoat and uh and watch that's what she's interested in.
0: I will say um, and this will take us into the next character, I suppose um my favorite scene in a movie is the one with the house, and it's all because of the dodo uh who who we meet relatively soon after we get to Wonderland and then who comes back for for that scene so uh what do you think of the
1: dodo? I love the dodo. I think the dodo is great. I had no memory of the dodo from like, I have very few memories of this movie, but I really like the dodo. I like him. So when we first meet him. He's, he's on the sea singing a great song about, I don't know. I don't even know what a sailor's
0: <laughs> life is the life for yeah. him. I think. Yes. The sailor's life.
1: That's right. Um,
0: but he's sailing on an upside down toucan. Like the, the toucan's <laughs> ridiculous beak is the vessel and he's sitting on the toucan's legs. Uh, which really yes. introduces that character well because he is defined by his uh, taking advantage of everybody.
1: Yeah, and then we see him on the shore. All, and he's singing another song. Um, the caucus race. Yeah, the caucus race, uh, and which is which is something I didn't understand what a caucus race was was meant to be in this scenario. It's like but, running for office. Well, that's what I thought, but. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> I guess they're all running in a circle, which I guess that does make sense now that I think about it.
0: Well and then the the guy who actually has all the power is standing above them not getting wet from the from the surf. Yeah. The is a member of the deep state.
1: <laughs> there you go. My favorite part in that scene is that the tide rushes in and, and he picks up he just picks up the whole fire. <laughs> and then sets it back down. I don't know why.
0: No, a, that's a great that's a great scene, and him, like, insisting that the only way to get dry is to run around in a circle in the surf. It's, like, it, it's just amazing, and everybody goes along with him except Alice, and she asks the question, and he fails to even recognize that the question's a question.
1: Well, what do you mean? He
0: says, I'm dry as a bone. Yeah. <laughs> the shamelessness of that character, I just love him.
1: I do too. As she's running away, his last line I think that you hear is, Hey, don't kick that mackerel. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, and then he shows up as uh the the rabbit is so Alice gets into uh the rabbit's house, eats a cookie, which makes her incredibly large, her hands are sticking out the windows, her feet are sticking out the door. Uh the rabbit freaks out and believes that she's a monster and goes looking for help and finds the dodo. And once again, the dodo is uh, basically no help at all. But is, he is delegates so... the
0: responsibility to Bill the lizard.
1: <laughs> That's right. Um, well, he sees. Does he see the lizard? I'm not. I'm not sure even how how it happens. But he says, "What we need is a lizard with a ladder." <laughs> and of course, there's a lizard with a ladder right there. I, I think
0: he sees um, the lizard. I think he sees Bill first, and then he decides they need the, yeah. the lizard. Yeah. Bill is responsible for my favorite line in the entire movie bill uh they get they get bill to go up and they want him to go down the chimney and pull her out with his tail which makes no sense because how's she going to fit through the chimney if she can't fit through the door but whatever they you know it's a world of nonsense um but when he gets down there it, it it sets loose some ash and she sneezes and he flies to the moon like when she sneezes he flies up into the sky and out of sight and uh there's a good three mississippi And the dodo turns to the white rabbit and goes, "Well, there goes Bill." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and like that—that is—I don't know why that's so funny to me, but I laughed out loud both times I watched this movie this
1: week. Yeah, it's it's very funny. It's a great scene. I yeah, it's a really great scene. So the dodo, I think, is is near the top. I there's so many great characters in here, but the dodo is really. He's, he's one of a kind. I really like him.
0: Well, the introduces a theme that, that, I mean, doesn't continue throughout, but comes up here and there, which is the absurdity of power. All the people who are in any kind of position of power in this movie are ludicrous. I mean, I guess everybody's ludicrous, but they're kind of terrifyingly ludicrous. You get the, the red queen, the, the queen of hearts. I don't know why I keep calling it a red queen. The, the queen of hearts, of course. I mean, she, she says all ways are my way. And like, like she's, you know, just a, uh, Power junkie, but the the dodo is really not much better. He just has less power, so can't do as much with it. Um, so I, I I think I think that goes through, and I think that's one reason it was important to bring him in early on.
1: Yeah, that's a good that's a good insight. He also smokes a pipe, which just makes him wonderful. So <laughs> well,
0: that's how he gets the idea to burn the house down.
1: That's right. Yeah. <laughs> little bread and butterflies kiss the tulips and
0: the sun is like a toy balloon there are up in the morning glories in the golden afternoon the strings of are all in two. Love the a golden a golden
1: There are dog and, and a copper a So we leave him dandy dandy working to uh, to burn the house down and let's see who's the next person that we meet, oh, well, we meet, um, after we see him the first time, we meet uh, Tweedledee and Tweedledum. I don't know what you'd like to say about them. Uh, we kind I, of talked I, about them a little bit already, because they tell the story of uh, the walrus and the oyster, of course. That's,
0: that's, that's kind of their job. Um, I, I will say that when I was a kid, I had a workout record, like a vinyl record of a 33 and a third long player uh, that was Disney. And, uh, you know, I was eight years old. And uh, Tweedledee and Tweedledum were on it. So when I see them, I always think of doing jumping jacks. <laughs>
1: the, the, uh, the amazingness of the um, Disney products. <laughs> yeah, it's really think,
0: crazy, isn't it? Like The, the, yeah.
1: the reach, the,
0: the, <laughs> the gangrenous <laughs> reach of the Disney Corporation <laughs> into every area of our lives.
1: <laughs> like why are Tweedledee and Tweedledum leading you in jumping jacks? I don't think it doesn't make any sense. You also had to do the
0: swim with Goofy, as I recall, but I could be wrong mm-hmm. about that. Anyway, that that's that's always my association with them. The important thing they do is bring in the walrus and the carpenter, which you don't like and I do.
1: No, I, I didn't I didn't mean to suggest that I don't like it. I just meant to say that I mean I think because Alice isn't directly interacting with those characters, it feels the most out of place in the movie. That's and true. So I guess I guess it's,
0: it's the one you could drop without losing any Alice.
1: Yeah. But um, I do think it's really nice, and I think it's a it'd be a it would it would fit right in with the shorts that we've just been watching. You know, like you know, if if it was just that standalone story, it would have fit in one of those shorts packages just fine. Again, so. I,
0: again, I can't praise J. Pad O'Malley highly enough for his performance as the as the Walrus. I think he's also the carpenter. Um, but uh, that 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 thing he does with the walrus, where it's it's the kind of gruff British snort, <clears throat> that 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 thing, the, uh, the th- thing I associate with Watson. Uh, it, it it's just that's a perfect performance to me, and I love how the walrus continually resorts to nonsense in order to avoid doing unpleasant things. I mean, that's that's kind of his, you know. That's why he wants to talk of other things, sails and ships and whatever.
1: Yeah. And again, that's just a wonderful little song slash poem that, that he's singing as he goes through it. Um, and yeah. And I mean, it's, it is quite catchy. You know, let's talk of other things. That's, that's good. Very enjoyable. And I agree that it's just, it's a, it's a great voice performance. And it's amazing that it's the same guy who's, I, I think he's, he's doing the walrus, the carpenter, uh, tweedledee, tweedledum, and, uh the oyster mother <laughs> or one little bit i think it's all the same guy
0: yeah it is uh, and it's the guy who plays colonel hardy in uh in the jungle book
1: oh and that's perfect too yeah but
0: but oh. let me ask you a question um, at the end of that sketch why is the carpenter angry
1: it's because he was in the back room preparing the the soup <laughs> and the bread to to put the oysters in, and while he was back there preparing it, the walrus ate them all.
0: And he he's mad because he wants to eat the oysters, right?
1: Yeah, he wants to eat the oysters, too. He spotted the oysters first.
0: Yeah, somebody <laughs> on TV Trope suggested that he was angry out of concern for the oysters. Like, he was angry because the the walrus betrayed the oysters.
1: No, he's no, angry yeah. because the walrus betrayed him.
0: Correct, yes, that's the, uh, <laughs> that's the right answer.
1: <laughs> yes, all right. I'm if anyone listening
0: wants to go edit that TV Tropes page, I, I'm too afraid to do it. <laughs> A- absurd, right? Like, there's no way that's what he's upset about. It's clear.
1: <laughs> it seems clear to me. So, yeah, the, the part... Actually, this is the, the part of the movie that, that confused me. Maybe, I don't know if you can answer this or not. Why, when the lady the mother oyster looks at her calendar and sees that it's March, which is not a good day to go walking. <laughs> it's, it's not a good day to go
0: for walking for an oyster. Um, you're supposed to only eat oysters in months that have an R in them.
1: So oh, that's basically a way of saying don't, yeah. eat,
0: don't eat oysters in May, June, or July, or August. But that, that's why uh, March All is right. a prime because, oyster yeah, month. All right, Because
1: the R gets very large, um, which obviously I was supposed to know that. Okay, thank you for clearing that up. That's
0: kind of an old-timey piece of advice. I don't know if anybody follows it anymore. Where's he go from? Where's she go from there?
1: Okay, um, so she sees uh, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, and then as she leaves them, she she goes to uh, your favorite, the caterpillar.
0: Sure. Yeah, uh, the caterpillar scared me when I was a child. Uh, I I don't know why. I mean, he is kind of creepy, right?
1: Well he's asking one of the most essential questions of life of who are you, you know?
0: A question but that's really I... important for this movie too, right? Because her her response is so telling, I wrote it down. Let me see. He says, Who are you? And she says, I've changed so many times since this morning.
1: Yeah, which that's that's verbatim from the book. Is it... So that's yeah.
0: So my theory about Alice in Wonderland is this is this is a kind of basic theory, I suppose. But this this is a movie about children becoming adolescents, becoming adults. So it makes sense that she wouldn't know who she is. It would make sense that that question would be deeply destabilizing for her, as indeed it is. Like she can't really answer him. And I mean, how would you answer it? If somebody asked you that, your name wouldn't be enough. So I, I, th- I think it is kind of an important question, although the scene is weird and druggy and, you know, uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great, and so and they don't really play it up in this movie as much. Um, in the book, when she's talking to the caterpillar, and she talks about the change, and um, of course he's a caterpillar who is often our. Uh, our metaphor for going through big changes, right? Um, And he does change into a butterfly in the movie, but they they play that bit up a little bit more in the book, the fact that, you know, she argues with him, and she's like, well, maybe you'll understand, because soon enough you're going to go through this, too. Um, So,
0: Yeah, I I didn't even think about that, although he changes, it seems to be he gets so angry at her that he changes to a butterfly.
1: Yeah, it's very different in the... In the movie, are not very different, but you know, different enough. Um, I don't, I don't know if it, if it's a different symbolism in him getting so angry. Uh, maybe you could pull something out of there. I didn't, I didn't see any symbolism in it.
0: I don't have anything, but,
1: but, I, but I,
0: I, I, do think whether it holds over from the book or not, that, that 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 demonstrates the degree to which this movie is about kind of navigating those turgid waters between childhood and adulthood.
1: Yeah. And I think you're really on to something there because I mean, you know, I work with middle schoolers, or I, I have been working with middle schoolers for the last few years, and so you know, who who am I is one of the the big driving questions of that time of life, you know? Yeah, a
0: question and, that I think it's important to note you don't ask yourself when you're six, seven years old. I don't think. I think that's that's kind of a question for a ten, eleven, twelve-year-old like Alice.
1: Yeah, 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 and I think Alice's. Is- I mean it's hard to tell how old she is supposed to be uh, in these movies. I think in the book she is supposed to be seven, but uh, I think you are. I think you're right that in the movie she she plays a little older. At She's least very her history precocious. lesson at the beginning. Well, her history lesson at the beginning of the movie was not uh, very developmentally appropriate for a seven year old either.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that history lesson was appropriate for anybody.
1: <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, that's so, to say the, about
0: the caterpillar. I I know this is one of the iconic scenes from this movie. It's not one of my favorites.
1: No, it's not one of my favorites either. I mean, I like when uh, he. So as he's asking her who she is, uh, the letters are coming out of his mouth, and the the R comes out for the R, and it hits her, and it breaks into a bunch of of smaller R's. I, I like that.
0: <laughs> Surely, some child psychologist has written about that.
1: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. If not, they should.
0: That, that's another one of the scenes in this movie that make me think this must have been the most fun movie to animate of all time, because so many of the gags are purely visual. Like you must have just you must have just had a blast if you were one of the animators.
1: Yeah, that's that's really interesting that you say that. Let me get let me read a quote here from Hollywood Cartoons: American Animation in Its Golden Age, uh, with the the author is Michael Barrier. And the quote here says, um, uh, Alice is a frantic film. Everyone working on it seems to have suffered from discomfort with the material, bordering on panic, and to have tried to disguise that co- discomfort as high spirits.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that makes sense, right? I, knowing what I know about the Carol original, I don't know how you would look at that and say, oh, I can easily make a 75-minute animated film out of that
1: yeah so I wonder though if it was that they were uncomfortable with the you know there's no story here and whatever but as you said it wasn't just that they were they were kind of hiding their discomfort with with high spirits but maybe they really were in high spirits because it it did give them such room to play as animators you know
0: yeah but you know the blank the blank canvas is is goes both directions right on the one hand it's very exciting and on the other hand it's crushing. So when you, when you're having to come up with everything as the animator, I mean I'm sure that is exciting and I'm sure also that it makes you a little frantic. And the movie is frantic, so maybe that worked.
1: Yeah, I think for the most part it did. I really I as I said earlier, I I think visually this this movie is is wonderful. I really enjoyed it. And and musically I think it's wonderful. It just it's it's missing that third piece. It's missing that story piece, which I mean, you know, arguably the most important piece, but um then again i guess it depends what you're watching the movie for this movie i feel like as an as an experience of just watching it which maybe is you know where some of that drug culture thing comes in like it's just it's just really fun it's a really fun movie to just sit down and watch
0: right right i and i i, I have never done psychedelic drugs but i i do have to wonder what it would be like to to take acid or mushrooms or whatever and then watch this movie i w- i would think the, the things that annoy me about it probably would not annoy me as much not that i'm suggesting anybody does that. Hey, I you hey, I
1: All right. Well, she leaves the caterpillar and she goes to the house, which we've already discussed uh, rather thoroughly. Um, so um, she leaves the house and she gets the flowers, which we, we also talked about a little bit already. Do you have more you wanted to say about the the flowers?
0: No, I don't think so. I, I do love that scene.
1: I, as as do I. I think it's I think it's wonderful. I actually, it I remembered it very differently than what it was. Um, I remember the flowers being much meaner to her than they were. So I don't know if I picked that up from a different telling of Alice somewhere, because as I said before, there's so many of them, or if it's just one of those tricks of the memory where as a kid, uh, they seem to be much meaner to her than they were as an adult. Uh, no way, they're, they're pretty they mean They are, but in my memory...
0: They call her a common vulgaris mobila, is that what they, <laughs> <laughs> what they say? Maybe, I, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> They are mean to her, but their their meanness is all in language. And I had a more slapstick version of their of their meanness to her where they were really like um, tossing her around or, you know, she was getting stuck inside the, you know, the the flowers in some way or something. Uh, I don't know. My, my memory of it was just very different than, than what was on the scene.
0: Interesting. I, I had remembered being kind of bored by that scene, but going back to it, it was one of my favorites.
1: Yeah, it's really nice. Um, so then she leaves the flowers, and now we get one of the iconics. you know, other than Alice, what, what do people think of in Alice in Wonderland, would have to be the Cheshire Cat, uh, played wonderfully by um, Sterling Holloway, who's just
0: a truly disconcerting performance from him right <laughs> like oh. he takes everything you love about sterling hall away and turns it on its head <laughs> like it's such a disturbing now, performance tell me some more
1: about that i didn't i didn't i didn't read it that way so so go on on that
0: so the Cheshire cat's scary right if you i mean i'm sure everybody listening to this has seen the movie because otherwise why would they still be listening an hour into the program um but the the Cheshire cat kind of appears and disappears at will he can make parts of his body appear and disappear at one point like everything but his stripes disappears he's very he's a very unsettling character disturbing's probably not the right word but he's unsettling and sterling holloway's voice is so unusual and so warm but he he takes it and it's like well, it's like he's standing on one foot the whole time. I guess, I guess it, it kind of it fits the character perfectly, but it's a disturbing performance to me. Like it's creepy. Do you disagree well, with that? Do you not think the Cheshire Cat's? You, uh, creepy? I'm not
1: saying he's not creepy, but I just, I don't know. I saw. What What do you think of the character of Ka in in the Jungle Book?
0: That's true. That's true. I guess I, maybe I'm thinking of Winnie the Pooh. Right. Which, but Ka is such a screw up, right? So Ka, Ka is scary. But Ka is also completely inept at actually killing and eating Mowgli.
1: Yeah, it's hard to see. It's hard to say whose side uh, the the Cheshire Cat is on in this one. You know,
0: there are no, maybe the problem with this movie. Maybe what, what exhausts me about this movie is that there are no sides. We, we've We've talked in the past about characters that are for order and characters that are for chaos there are no characters for order in this movie and and the the fact that the Cheshire cat of all people is set up as her guide right that's his job he tells her where to go <laughs> um, that he's set up as her guide. think about what that means for the order of this movie. there is none like th- there's no logic there's no movement it's all circular
1: right and so do you think that is is, i I don't know do you think that's what it, it feels like to be a child or do you think that this movie is you know suggesting something else out of that because there's something we should be taking from that
0: isn't that what it feels like to be a child don't you feel like don't you feel like your life just kind of goes in circles it's only when you look back at it that you recognize it was headed a direction and not a particularly good direction right um Mary Warnock, who's a British philosopher, says that every, I'm I'm paraphrasing, obviously, everybody's past is a Garden of Eden that's a Garden of Eden, specifically because we've been kicked out of it. Alice is in a hurry to not, hmm, she doesn't really want to grow up, right? But she also doesn't want to exist as a child in the environment she exists as a child in. So she feels like things are going in a circle. And so things go in a circle in, uh, in Wonderland. Like at one point tellingly literally the path she is walking on is erased in front of her right that creepy dog with the with the uh brush tail literally erases the road she's on in front of her And i I do think that's what it feels like to be a child that for a long time being a child feels like stasis right and then at a certain point it feels like you want to get out of this cycle and can't and then it feels like you want to get out of the cycle but you have no idea what's ahead of you and then when you get to be an adult, it's just like, uh, I don't know, kind of a disappointment. <laughs>
1: yeah, all of our ten-year-old selves are disappointed in who we became. Maybe um, I don't know about that.
0: But isn't the, isn't there? Some, don't don't you think that's an accurate description of what it felt like to be a child? I, yeah. that you're just you're going
1: around in a yes circle. No, I don't know. There's there's
0: you're a happier person than I am, though, Josh. That's, that's
1: what I was going to say. There is not there is it was kind of dire or something the way you, the way you just described that. And I don't I don't think
0: how long have you known me Josh?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not as a child I guess. I didn't realize that it went back. As I, as I always tell far. my wife,
0: as I always tell my wife, you you knew what I was when you married me.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's 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 a good bit of advice for anybody getting married because people yeah, people stay the same in many ways. They also change.
0: But I, I, I do I do think I do think this movie enacts a certain mm. feeling of childhood. Both the feeling of helplessness in the face of the adult world, the kind of terror you have about the adult world. You know you're gonna grow up. You don't really want to. I remember being thoroughly disgusted by the word man when I was like ten or eleven. The notion that I would one day <laughs> be a man. That really grossed me out. And I, I think I think there's something about this movie that shares that disgust, not as much as Peter Pan, obviously. But the the fact that the adult world is represented entirely by that incredibly boring history lesson at the beginning of the movie, I, I think that betrays a certain disgust
1: at the idea of becoming an adult. Okay, but let me. Per- but that- oh, I was just yeah, going to press you on that a little bit because this is one of the questions that I, that I'd written down that I wanted to ask you about. So this this whole place that we're in is is built out of Alice's imagination. And at the beginning, she's bored with, with the real world, and she wants to create this nonsensical world. And she does. Um, and then at, at a certain point, she's she's sick of it. She wants to go home, and she's kind of terrified of it. So I, I'm, I may be misunderstanding what you're saying, but like it seems like the reading that you're giving is that she... She doesn't want to enter the adult world, but in this way, it's almost like, well, once she gets a taste of her own, you know, uh, it's like overeating sweets or something, you know, like, she doesn't actually want that. She does want to be part of of the real world.
0: Yes, I think that's exactly right. She wakes up at the end of the movie, and I'm sure eventually she'll be working some mind-deadening... 9 to 5 actually she probably won't since she's a Victorian woman but she'll she'll be keeping her household or whatever and she'll she'll fondly remember her unpleasant time in wonderland the way we all look back more or less fondly on our terrible adolescence mm. Don't you think like I I think I think that ambivalence is important. She doesn't like being a child is terrible in some ways. Right. Nobody when you're a child, you don't like being a child. When you're when you're a child, you're ready to grow up, even if you're afraid to do it. When you're a child, you feel powerless and you feel like the adults are all emotionally dead and you don't want to become one, but also you don't want them running your life. But also, you certainly don't want to be set free. I, I don't know. There's, that that ambivalence, I think, is part of it as well.
1: Yeah, I, you may be right. I don't know. My, uh, yeah, my my kids may be a little too young yet. Like, there's they. I mean, maybe they're feeling that way, and I'm not aware of it. But they just they seem to really be enjoying <laughs> their life as it is right now. You know, um, I think.
0: You didn't. You didn't feel that way when you were a kid. When you were, uh, I'm 10, so bad years at old.
1: my my memories of things. I just. I don't. It's very hard for me to go back and remember what I was feeling at a certain time until I see something, right? So, like, like I said, like when I right, saw the right. the watch scene, I instantly remembered that feeling of of great discomfort of why are they doing that to his watch. Um But I wouldn't have been able to tell you that, you know, without having seen it. So. um which is a kid thing to
0: feel right like because that's not a reaction about justice i suspect that's not how dare they destroy this thing they need to buy him a new one how's he gonna know when he's late to things that is like an emotional reaction that watches part of him that's how
1: children think i think yeah i think that's accurate so yeah and then but i mean i guess working with a, you know a slightly older crowd of kids you know the, that middle school age there is definitely that sense of like uh yeah like i don't know that too cool for school type thing where it's like why are you telling me anything and why can't i just do my own thing and you know uh it's very i don't know non i mean i guess it, it, it's a in a way the the way you're describing it creates a lot of empathy like they're going through they're going through something horrible where they don't really understand it and they're they're kind of stuck in it and so of course their outward reaction is going to be to you know simultaneously desire and reject uh, adults right
0: well, well, yeah, I mean, and that doesn't stop them from being the most unpleasant people on the planet, and God bless you for working with middle yeah,
1: I love them <laughs> I really do I think it, I think they're <laughs> great, so uh for me it's for me, it's a joy, so um, yeah, I wouldn't call them the most unpleasant people on the planet, but
0: <laughs> no no they're there are there are worse they're worse people <laughs>
1: yeah. um so I do.
0: I, I don't know. I, 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 I think a lot about this stuff. I think a lot about, like, our – especially doing this podcast because it's it's so much watching things that I loved when I was a kid. So, so much of it about it is, is trying to figure out what parts of that to hold on to and what parts of it are just nostalgia. I don't know. But I, 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 do, think, I do think most people have really ambivalent attitudes, first toward growing up and then toward having grown up. So in some ways, I think most of us would say, oh, wouldn't it be great to be a kid again? But also, if you really sit down and think about it, well, no, it wouldn't. I mean, being a kid kind of demonstrably sucks in a lot of ways. Like like you don't have any real power or freedom or, you know, drive on. The, but on the other hand. You're also almost nothing but drive. Your imagination is much, much stronger than it'll ever be when you're an adult. And, and I, I think Alice in Wonderland gets that right, too. If this is all something Alice dreamed up, I mean, think about, think about what that means for who she is internally.
1: Yeah, I, I agree that there's a, there's a real power to the imagination um that's that 's shown there, and that was kind of my other question that's that's related on what we 're talking about here is you know what is is this movie telling us anything about our imaginations or the way that we should you know the way that we should think about creating our own worlds or you know um Tolkien talked about it as being you know there's the ultimate creator, but in some ways our being sub creators uh is us working in god 's image you know and so how um yeah how alice's strong imagination leads to both this this ability to escape the monotony of her life and have some power and control really as you're as you were talking there i, I, I it it clicked with me that that alice really as episodic as this movie is she is always the one who just leaves the scene and you know that is her her form of kind of uh, initiation or power in this movie is to be able to you know to leave the scene and to to go do something else which in her real life obviously she can't other than through <laughs> her her fantasy but then at the same time she's afraid of it and at the same time she you know she ends up crying and and wanting to wanting to leave it and eventually running from from basically everything in it
0: right. Yeah, she's afraid of her internal world as well. As well she should be, right? Yeah. The internal world of a child is a powerful, terrifying thing.
1: Yeah. So, as but as you said, you think about this stuff a lot. Does that have anything to say for us as adults about our <laughs> internal world as adults? Or our our capacity for imagination? Or, you know, is this something that we should, you know, should we just look back on it as nostalgia? Or is it something that we should be trying to foster? Or... Like where? What do you think? Well, about I think that? anybody
0: creative wants to hold on to some part of that, right? Like, like if you could, if you could hold on to the part of childhood that is just like rabid, fiery imagination, th- that would be great if we could all do that. But we can't. I think that is, in fact, one reason why some people do drugs. I, I mean, I, I don't think it's a it's a it's a coincidence to get back to Sergeant Pepper. I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of that late 1960s drug music is, draws on childhood imagery. Because when you're a child, you don't need the drugs to get that stuff. You know, your, your, your brain just naturally works that way. It hasn't calcified yet. Uh, the, the sad sequel to Alice in Wonderland is Alice at 45, not able to bring any of these things to life again.
1: Yeah, but the happy sequel would be uh, the... Lewis Carroll. Well, yeah, Lewis Carroll. I was I was thinking of uh, the professor from the Narnia books, right? Who, you know, when the... When uh, Peter and Susan come to him and are like, you know, uh, Lucy's dreaming up all this stuff, you know, he encourages it and says, well, why can't it be real? Why can't, you know... Uh, What do they teach you in schools these days, (laughs) you know? Uh, And and of course, it's because he's drawing on, I mean, as you find out later in, you know, the Mr. Justin's Nephew, he's drawing on his own experience of having entered that world, you know? Um,
0: What I think, I think one thing that's clear from looking at classic children's literature is the people who are really good at writing this are typically the people who somehow remember what it is to be a kid, the way that you and I apparently don't. You know, you said you said you have a bad memory for this, and my memories are all like, uh, you know, existential.
1: I was going to go the opposite and say maybe you should be writing maybe you should be writing children's literature, Michael, because I mean this is the second time where you really I mean the second episode where I remember you uh, really delving into you know what it felt like to be on that verge of a verge of adolescence or the verge of of adulthood, and so maybe. Maybe you do have a knack for it.
0: But the the other thing I would say is that the rest of us, I, I think it's important for us to believe whimsical nonsense. And, and this is something I think we talked about when we talked about Little Toot, of all things, about the kind of um, enchantment of the city that you get from when you live in the suburbs or wherever and you watch uh, you watch children's movies set in the city or the enchantment of the countryside you get. When you live in the city and watch children's movies set in the countryside, I think I think it's important that we allow ourselves to believe the nonsense to to kind of say, yeah, that doesn't make sense, but I'm going to try to think of the world that way because uh, because there's value in it, I suppose. I mean, the fact that I feel the need to justify it suggests I haven't I haven't accepted it enough.
1: Yeah, I'm there with you on that though. I mean, whimsy brings, uh, brings its own kind of meaning. You know, it's a meaning in itself, but it also, you know, it fosters joy, um, so that you're not just <laughs> the dullard working the nine to five or whatever, right? Like it brings life in unexpected places. And you see that in this movie. I mean, the, the, the scene I, I absolutely love the animation in. When they get to, uh, when she goes into the, uh, what's the name of the woods? The Tol, the Tolgi woods. Um, and there's all those birds that are just, you know, normal everyday objects, but they've been turned into birds. So there's pencil birds and, uh, shovel birds and glasses birds and mirror birds. And I just, I adore it. Um, and, you know, that, that to me is a little bit of what you're talking about. Like there's, you know that that ability to look at an everyday object but not see the object
0: and again i can't help but thinking that's one reason people use psychedelic drugs
1: yeah i mean and and i guess and maybe in some ways that's a shortcut to it right like maybe that's the easier way to get at it than to have to 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 work at it and to to find that that enchantment <laughs> without so, the drugs so one object
0: that has always maintained that for me and i i assume it's this way for everybody but it's probably not so you tell me but the umbrella the umbrella is kind of a ridiculous object if you think about it i mean it's it's completely functional it was invented for a reason and yet also it's it's silly and you look silly when you carry one and there's something kind of silly about walking through the rain with one and and so when you talk about the eyeglasses bird or the pencil bird, I think I think umbrellas kind of hold that mystique uh, for me, and I hope for other people or else you right. all think that I'm uh, insane. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: no, yeah, and there's also an umbrella bird in here, right? There's a, there's a couple of them. Um, they're a little more sinister, but they are there. Um, but
0: it's it's the most ordinary thing in the world, and and yet somehow it still maintains some kind of magic.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And yeah, I don't, I don't need to take that all apart. I think that's I think that's wonderful. Um So yeah, I I think that yeah, you're right. Like the the whimsy of of childhood when we can when we can maintain it, um it fosters something something good within us. Uh, that we should that we should strive to hold on to although so then explain the scene to me or explain the symbolism of the scene to me i couldn't explain it to my kids today uh because they they said um you know why why are all those things disappearing because as she as she sings her song and uh and cries about the fact that she wants to go home all those all those whimsical objects disappear She's had enough,
0: right? Like the the glasses bird lands on her face, and she says something like, "Not now." She yeah. doesn't. She doesn't want to engage this anymore.
1: So, are we taking the wrong message from the movie? Because we both just argued that we should try and maintain and foster that. I mean, I guess in, in moderation or something. I No,
0: I think I, I, I'm not. I don't. I don't know that I would say the movie has a message, but I do think I do think it has a vibe, and I think that vibe is ambivalence. She. she she wants both things at once and when we watch the movie we want both things at once we'll get into this next time because I'm going to talk about it when we get to Peter Pan for sure Um, but there's a sense in which the world the children in Peter Pan already live in the Edwardian England they already live in is already magical like when I watch that movie I think why would they ever want to leave it What, what, what what does Neverland have to offer these people And I I think that has to be our attitude watching a lot of these movies. They all want something else. But I mean, maybe the human condition is just wanting all things at once.
1: Yeah, the seaweed is always greener and somebody else is like...
0: Well, there's another movie where it's like, why would anybody ever want to leave the world they already live in? Why would anybody not want to live under the sea? Yeah. Or Belle. Like, who would want to leave that quaint provincial french town
1: that's right
0: well anybody who actually lived there (laughs) (laughs) that's the answer to that
1: yeah all right well i'm glad we talked so much about whimsy i want to ask you one more question about it because walt disney himself discussing the disappointment of this film said quote it's terribly tough to transfer whimsy to the screen and I think that is just one of the most insane things he's ever said because animation is the perfect uh, medium for whimsy. And Certain, I think how else are all- you going to get it there? Yeah, so I just didn't know if you had any thoughts on that quote.
0: <laughs> it's got to be hard though, right? Like I can't imagine being an animator. I can't imagine coming up with the gags from the Mad Tea Party. I can't imagine coming up with those birds you're talking about. Um, so I, th- I think whimsy must be hard to translate. On the other hand, I think they did a pretty good job.
1: Yeah, I think I think this movie is very whimsy, very whimsical, I would say. But I mean, but maybe not as whimsical as like uh, Winnie the Pooh, for example. I think. I have,
0: right. I, well, I will say this: I never saw Winnie the Pooh as a kid, so I have absolutely no nostalgia for it. So, yeah. so you're barking up the wrong tree with Winnie the Pooh. All
1: right. What's the most whimsical Disney movie?
0: I think it's gotta be this one, right? I mean, <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right. Okay. So we're both in agreement that Walt Disney was was crazy on that one. All
0: right. Yeah, but I'm I'm also certain that if you if you we could somehow project what he saw for this movie in his head, if we could somehow project that on the wall, this movie would look like a failure to us too.
1: Yeah. Well, and it was—I mean, it was a critical—not a critical failure, I guess—but um, yeah, there was a good there was a good quote from the hi, uh, I'm the the uh, the guy who wrote for the New York Times. Um, do you remember his name? I do not. Bosley Bosley Crowther, I think we've oh, mentioned him before. Oh, of course, Bosley Crowther. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know how well known he is, Um, but he said, watching this picture is something like nibbling those wafers that Alice eats, so I think it's just kind of, you know, sometimes it's too much and sometimes it's, you know, not enough or something.
0: I think that's, I think that's a good description yeah we we but, haven't talked in detail about the mad tea party and i think we've we'll missed on too that's
1: that's actually what was, what was next as we were running through our characters here so we're yeah uh let's get there a very merry birthday to me to, to me oh yeah a very merry birthday to you who me yes you oh me congratulations with another cup of tea a very merry
0: Um, it's a it's the it's the other iconic scene besides the uh besides the caterpillar there are uh, my notes on this say it must have been a great deal of fun to animate it uh there's lots of funny gags about the way they drink the tea my favorite is the march hare wants half a cup so he cuts the cup in half uh height wise and <laughs> somehow the tea <laughs> stays halfway in
1: yeah that's that's also my favorite um yeah, along with the fact that every time Alice is actually finally about to get some tea, uh, the Mad Hatter decides he needs a new new cup, a clean cup, and so they all have to move down a couple seats, and so she never actually gets any tea at the tea party.
0: At Crown, we have a uh, we, we have a scholarship, and you, you have to come in an interview for it, and one of the events is. Uh, there's like 14 interviewers and there's you know however many interviewees and they rotate through the room and they talk to each of us for a minute or whatever and uh, we call that the mad tea party. I yell change places between between every every time the minute runs out.
1: Do you yell it in the Mad Hatter voice?
0: I, I, I as we learned earlier when I tried to impersonate Droopy Dog, <laughs> I don't really do voices. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Mad Hatter is played very famously by vaudevillian Ed Wynn, who is, other than this, probably best known for his role as Uncle Albert.
1: Yeah, and Mary Poppins, for, right? Mary
0: Poppins. Um, such
1: a, such an iconic voice, if uh, that's the right word for it.
0: <laughs> I don't know how anybody has that voice, but you know, every now and then there's a person with a voice so strange that they were just made to do voice acting. The other one I think of is Pat Buttram, who played... Uh, who played the sheriff of Nottingham and Robin Hood?
1: Oh, yes. Like, that's how that yeah.
0: guy talked. What was he going to do other than <laughs> do voices for Westerns?
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. So,
0: so did you know, I, I just learned this today, um, we talked about this, I think, with Cinderella, which is they not only use the voice actors for the voices, they also did live action studies of them. And so they they actually enacted the the Mad Tea Party live action with Ed Wynn and, and uh, Catherine Beaumont who played Alice and Ed Wynn improvised a bunch of that stuff including a bunch of the stuff with the watch including including the uh, the best Mad Hatter line mustard don't let's be silly
1: yes <laughs> I, I won't try to do the voice. Oh, but it's, it is. It's it's the best line, because he's already put um, jam and butter and two spoons of sugar, with the actual spoons, not the sugar itself, into the watch. And well, and also, say,
0: also, Mustard. Don't let's be silly. But also the tortured grammar of don't let's be silly. But, but anyway, they, they tried to have him come in later and redo it, and he couldn't, so they just had to use the, uh, the audio from, from his live-action modeling. Uh, that's, so I think most of the Mad Tea Party is improvised. I don't know if Jerry Kalana, who plays the March Hare, was there or not.
1: Well, it's wonderful, anyway. And uh, The Very Merry Unbirthday is, is probably the most catchy song out of all of these. Um, your,
0: your kids now know about Unbirthdays. Does that make you nervous?
1: No, actually, it was really funny. Um, so uh, because all of my kids... Uh, usually celebrate their birthdays in China and the grandparents never get to have like a birthday party for them uh, we had a kind of an unbirthday party this this summer while we were here so um, it kind of worked out perfectly actually that's wonderful yeah I
0: mean you talk about whimsy and enchantment what could be more whimsical and enchanted than the unbirthday party I mean it's yeah. literally taking a day that has no meaning to you whatsoever and instilling it with great meaning
1: yeah. And that's even at the the end with the, uh, the watch, uh, he says, oh, and it was an unbirthday present to you. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't know. It's just, it's perfect. Um, yeah. And then it, it comes back around because of course they celebrate the queen's unbirthday, uh, in the last scene, which we'll get to eventually, but, um, and as one of the, the high points of the animation in this movie, I think when uh, they, they realize it's the Queens on birthday and Alice is just in disbelief of this and like puts her oh, face in her hand no. and it's just, it's perfect. It is so perfectly animated. I love it. Um, it's, it's one of the high points of the movie.
0: So. There's a lot of great moments of Alice animation, like just kind of subtle uh, expressions on her face and, and gestures.
1: Yeah, they're really, I think, coming into their own as animators in that way, where there's a, you know, they're able to do uh, more with less now, you know? Um, Well, it helps, it
0: helps that Alice is more or less a realistic character. She looks more like Cinderella than she does like the Mad Hatter.
1: Right, yeah. Um, Yeah, she just looks like a little girl for the most part. Um, So. But yeah, the, the Mad Hatter's Tea Party is is wonderful, and uh, it's, uh, it's too bad for Alice that she doesn't enjoy it as much as we do watching it, <laughs> I guess.
0: And of course it is the source of one of the iconic Disney park rides, the Mad Tea Cups, where you get in the cup and spin around. I don't write it.
1: Yeah, I can't do spinning rides anymore. Uh, Yeah, I loved it when I was a kid.
0: I I have very distinct memories of riding it as a child, but I I, like looking at it makes me want
1: to throw up. Yeah, that's another part of childhood that I've lost. So, all right, so we we leave the Mad Hatter. Uh, We get to um, the scene that we kind of already talked over, uh, where you know she's she's done with the nonsense, and um, a very a lovely song. Um, the, I, I give myself good advice, very good advice, uh, which I think is, I really like the song. Um, but I think it is, uh, it's lacking heart of some kind.
0: This movie does not have heart.
1: Right. And Walt Disney agrees with us on that one. He says that they, they kind of missed it. They were, they were making a movie because they felt like, uh, they had to. A lot of people wanted him to make an Alice movie and it just, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't generate the emotional response in me, or I mean, <laughs> the tell. Here's the telling thing: when my kids are watching it, they're saying, "Why is everybody crying now?" <laughs> so that tells you that uh, the 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 emotional levers that are supposed to be pulled are not being pulled, right?
0: That scene is a parody of Snow White, right? Or Bambi. Um, she's sitting on the uh, part of Snow White. She's sitting on the rock it's it's when Snow White first gets sent into the wilderness. She she sits there and cries and all the animals get her around. And there's a very similar scene in Bambi at the beginning when Bambi is announced as the Prince of the Forest or whatever. All the animals. I, 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 I picked up on it when there's the there's the bird made out of the bicycle horn.
1: And then its yeah. its
0: infants come all around with it.
1: Yeah, very much like the. Uh, oh, what is that? It's a bird, quail, but... I think. Yeah, a quail. Yes.
0: I think it's yeah, got to be but... a parody of those movies. Although I couldn't find anything online. I didn't look very hard, but I couldn't find anything online that that said it was a parody of it.
1: Well, that's why people listen to to this. For this podcast is for these deep, another academic paper somebody else can write these deep insights that no one else has seen no i really think that's right i didn't i didn't think of it that way at all but it's got to be i mean there, there's no way that the animators who animated that didn't have it in mind as they're animating this right they had to right
0: and it's it's such i i, I what i should really do is sit down with both of them and see how close it is but i think it's got to be pretty close
1: yeah it makes it makes perfect sense to me i'm glad you brought that out Yeah, so I think the song is beautiful. I'm I'm sorry that they made everybody cry in it because it's it's not really a tearful song to me. And I, I just I don't feel like I as you said, like the, the heart is just not there. And so um it suffers it suffers because of that. But um so then uh Cheshire Cat shows back up again and uh opens the the shortcut for her to get into the land of uh, the cards and the Queen of Hearts. Um, Painted the roses red is another very catchy song. A classic. Yeah, and of course.
0: Sung by the Mellow Men. <laughs>
1: yeah, and I, as I've said, I, I just love the music in this in this movie. It's it's so good, um, and the the great line when they when they're sentenced to be beheaded, is uh, they deserve it because roses are only meant to be red.
0: <laughs> she has a good point, though.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so. The
0: King is the best part of the last 30 minutes of the movie for me. That I the, the King just completely cracks me up. Again, if you haven't seen it, and I don't know why you would still be listening to this if you hadn't, uh Frankly, I don't know why you'd still be listening to this, even if you have. But thank you if you still are. Uh, the, you know, the queen is this enormous ball-busting tyrant, and the king is literally a foot and a half tall.
1: Yeah, it's it's great. He makes her not terrifying. Like the fact that he's yes, there makes her not. That's terrifying.
0: true. He softens her. Yeah. It's funny, though, because she, she will order someone to be beheaded, and he will add, by the order of the king. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which is just really great,
0: yes. Do you know what the name of the actor who plays the king of hearts is? I do not, no. Dink Trout. <laughs> <laughs> seems like it could be the king's real name, doesn't it?
1: It does, yeah. Dink Trout. That is perfect. Yeah. So He, he actually
0: died before the movie came out.
1: Oh, that's too bad. But... Yeah, he's he's adorable, and uh, he really drives it because you know uh, the queen's ready to behead her, and he says, "Well, can't, can't we have a trial first? And then she's ready to just sentence her again within the trial. He says, "Well, we haven't even called any witnesses yet," so uh, I think
0: he just wants to uh, to do something.
1: Yeah. So yes, but the reason that uh, well we haven't really talked about the queen yet, what did we? we? We did talk about her a little bit. We talked bit.
0: about her a little bit. Yeah. We talked about power. She's a petty tyrant.
1: Yeah, which is what Alice ends up calling her. Unfortunately, Alice calls her that. Alice gets the nerve to call her that because she eats both the mushrooms at the same time, grows huge, is towering over the queen, and is able to tell her what she thinks of her, but then immediately shrinks down again. And so then is a, once again in trouble um, because she's she's lost all the power. Oops. Oops. I I do like the queen as the croquet player, like when she's uh, rolling up her sleeves and swinging around the, uh, the, the flamingos. Um, And I think that's just really well done. Like it's, I really, I really like how she looks. I like how the, like that whole, whole scene plays out. And then of course the, the flamingos and the, what the hedgehogs that are the croquet balls are all in on it. And she apparently is not, but she's not actually a great croquet player, but, um, Oh, she knows. She,
0: she just has chosen not to know. (laughs) My, My favorite thing about her is that when she announces off with his head, the crowd cheers and she looks very surprised and pleased that they're cheering her. Yeah. You really, you really see how empty she must be
1: inside. Yeah. Yeah. Way to make it way to make it sad, Michael. <laughs> uh,
0: you know if she's terrifying. You have to have something to.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I think that's really right. You know, like you knew but... what
0: I was when you married me. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, did the king know what the queen was when he married her? Though that's the question.
0: I'm sure he married her because she's the, uh, the the one in charge. Yeah. He's, he's pr- he probably married into the royalty.
1: Yeah. Must have. Um, I don't know how much say he had in the wedding. I'm sure she, I'm sure she came up with it. Yeah. I like the croquet scene. I don't love the trial scene. Like the trial, I think is where I start to lose it. So the croquet scene is great. Actually, that's the one last thing we should say about is during the croquet scene, uh, there's a couple other really nice moments. When, when it's Alice's turn, she puts the, uh, the queen puts the bird down on its back and then sits on its legs, which I just find hilarious. And then, um, Alice, don't
0: try that with real flamingos, by the way,
1: <laughs> Alice, of course, can't get her flamingo to do anything for her. Um, and yeah, it reminded me a little bit of, uh, of your favorite from Cinderella Gus there for a second. I looked to see if it was the same voice actor, but it's not. Um, it's
0: Pinto Colvig who plays goofy.
1: Yeah. I was surprised by that. Um, yeah, so I I think all of that's really really great, and then of course the Cheshire Cat shows up again, and uh, places the Queen's croquet mallet, flamingo bird beak under her dress so that as she swings it, she flips herself upside down, and uh, my my kids got a chuckle out of it, but then my my daughter also said if if he's supposed to be her friend, why would he do that? <laughs> <laughs> there are no
0: friends in Wonderland. Yeah,
1: so. Oh, or I'm sorry, it wasn't that part. She he was wondering, or she was wondering why uh, the cat repeated what Alice said when Alice uh, attacks the Queen as being a tyrant, and then the Queen says, "What did you say?" And then the cat repeats it. That was the one that she was wondering about, not the not the flipping over. But I think that's a good answer. There are no good friends in Wonderland.
0: March Hare and the Mad Hatter seem to get along
1: okay. Yeah, they do.
0: I give myself very good advice, but I very seldom follow it. That explains the trouble that I'm always in. Be patient is very good advice, but the waiting makes me
1: curious. And I'd love the change should something strange begin. Well, I. Well, Michael, my impression of you is that I could wake you up from a dead sleep, tell you I needed you in an hour, or needed you to do an hour-long lecture on postmodernism right now, and you would be fine. So, um, I know postmodernism is a bit of a slippery term. But friend of the show, Jason, uh, thought that this movie is decidedly more postmodern than anything we've seen so far, and I was wondering what your thoughts were on that one.
0: I mean, I I would have to know more what he meant by that term. I I guess it is in the sense that there's not any kind of linear story, that it just kind of meanders back and forth. There's no real moral, uh, which is, I, I think, people come to expect from these Disney movies. There's certainly the movie doesn't expect you to act like Alice. It doesn't expect Alice to have learned any particular lesson by the end. I don't know. Postmodern is such a a slippery word that I I, I don't know. There are ways in which I I agree that this this feels more quote-unquote postmodern than the previous movies, and there are ways I think that
1: it doesn't. That's not a very good answer. I'm sorry. I I guess you you, were wrong. Can you tell... (laughs) No, I'm not wrong. Um, You're just being modest.
0: Well, I mean, another thing. So, postmodernism is, let's say, the, the classic definition is incredulity toward meta narratives. So, it's skeptical of big solutions, and 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 grand narratives. And I mean, one of the points of this movie is it doesn't have a grand narrative. There's no through line. It's just a bunch of nonsense that happens um, and and repeats. And as I said earlier, you can kind of dip in anywhere. That's a, that's a pretty postmodern idea. The the suspicion this movie has of earthly power, I think, is is something that at least puts it in league with postmodernism. You don't have to be postmodern to be skeptical of political power, but it certainly helps. So yeah, I think I think there's postmodern things about this movie, whereas I mean there's not very much at all about Cinderella, for example, that I think you could fruitfully call postmodern.
1: Does that line up with uh kind of the timing of of postmodern things. I don't know when postmodern starts entering our vocabulary, you know. Like artistically or whatever.
0: Uh the term certainly wouldn't have been in wide usage then if it existed at all. It's an architectural term first. And I think it starts I'm trying to remember the year. There's a essay by Charles Jenks where he he gives a year and a day and a time because it's the time that this uh modernist housing complex was detonated. Um I think it's nineteen sixty eight. So this would have been a little early, but there's certainly there's certainly literature from nineteen fifty one that I think would fit in more or less with postmodernism as opposed to uh to high modernism or whatever. I mean, the problem is that term means something different for philosophy than it does for literature, than it does for architecture, than it does for visual mm-hmm. art, than it does for film. So I mean, it can. That's why I say it's such a slippery term. It can mean all sorts of things. But I, I, I think there's certainly a sense in which this is a more postmodern movie than any of the other ones we've watched so
1: far. Yeah. Would you? But it's. It sounds like it's not normally lumped in with kind of the the cutting edge of that sort of movement or anything like that, um, from what you're saying. I, or, or would I would be? be
0: shocked if it turned out that they had any idea that that's what would happen with it. I, th- I think they were probably trying to make a more or less faithful adaptation of um, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass and the degree to which these movies are postmodern is the degree to which those books are proto postmodern. Does it make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. They're just being true to the source material and, uh, the source material was in some ways influential on that, I guess, which is, that's just
0: my gut feeling, not knowing the source material.
1: Yeah. Makes sense to me. I think.
0: Did, did you find it? I mean, is that, a, is that a term you would use to describe this movie?
1: I don't know if I would have, but I... I... Yeah, I... I also don't really have a good definition of what postmodernism is, I guess. so. I'm not
0: sure anybody does, to be fair. I think that's part of the point. Um, years and years ago, I don't even remember what year, probably 2013, the Christian Humanist podcast did an episode on postmodernism where we try to wrestle with the different meanings of that word so if anybody's interested in hearing me contradict what i just said now i'm sure they can go back and find that on the christian humanist podcast feed
1: yeah i don't know if they'll find any contradictions as you were saying that it kind of rung a bell i kind of remembered you guys discussing how it had different meanings for different uh whatever fields and that yeah, the the, the time, the t- even the timing was different. So postmodernism and architecture starts at that date that you mentioned, but postmodernism and philosophy starts at a different time or, or whatever. So
0: right, well, and, and so I wrote an essay on the uh, the show Parks and Rec and it's it's indebtedness to this movement called metamodernism. We have an episode on that too, so I won't go into exactly what that means here, but um, somebody one of the reviewers of the essay when I, when I submitted it to the journal wrote back and said you know I'm very confused because what you're calling postmodern in this essay looks very much like modern literature to me and there, there's a sense in which that's true postmodern philosophy matches up very closely with like Ulysses by James Joyce which is the high modernist text so the, the, the terms really are not very helpful but this, this movie feels less classical than something like Cinderella does, certainly.
1: Yeah. And then do you think we'll take a step back then from that? Like, they kind of come up to an edge here, and then they step back as we go back to, like, as we get to Peter Pan next month? Would you to some extent,
0: right? I, I mean, I think the word I would probably use for this movie is Freudian, and I can't defend that, so I couldn't, like, go through and tell you all the ways in which this is Freudian. But I, I think there is a sense in which Alice in Wonderland is tapping into the human subconscious. Uh, all that stuff I said about childhood and adulthood and the ambivalence—I think, I think that's what we're dealing with. And Peter Pan definitely deals with that too. But Peter Pan is a much less experimental movie formally than Alice in Wonderland is. Uh, Peter Pan has a uh, has a plot that. You follow through, and there are kind of deviations from it, but it's a it's a fairly straightforward movie in a way that Alice in Wonderland is definitely not. I, is there another Disney movie that is this scattered, other than the than the uh, package features?
1: That's a good question. I don't I don't know off the top of my head that there is until we get to um, some of the really bad ones, which I, I haven't even seen yet. But I, I would imagine that you know they're they're lacking something, and so sometimes when when you don't have a direction, um, it could seem scattered. Whereas this one seems a little more not intentionally scattered, but that is kind of what the source material is, you know.
0: Yeah, it's 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 a it's a wandering movie. Yeah, I would say intentionally scattered is probably right. I mean, it, it's not like they were trying to present a cohesive narrative here. I don't think. Maybe they were, and they no. failed. But no, it, it I seems to me like this is what they wanted it to be.
1: Yeah, I think in some ways it's more cohesive than the books were. As I was saying earlier, like I just I didn't I didn't feel like there was a lot of cohesiveness in in reading the books. Although I didn't get through, I didn't get all the way through both of them. So maybe there's <laughs> maybe there's something there that that I've missed. Victoria
0: told me that she doesn't like the Alice books, but she loves uh, the Phantom Toll by Norton Juster. Did
1: you ever read that? I am familiar with it, but I don't know if I ever read it or not.
0: Apparently, that is a less nonsensical. Version of the Alice books in some ways. Hmm. I read it in fifth grade and it scared the living hell out of me. (laughs) Really? Um, But I I was not a very hard kid to scare, so I don't know if I don't know if that's a reasonable reaction to the Phantom Tollbooth or not. But there's a there's a dog with a clock for a face, and that like really flipped me out.
1: Yeah. Well, you also didn't like the dog with the broom for a face, so. Maybe I just that don't like sense. cartoon dogs. You ever think about that? <laughs> I was I was afraid of the Maybe. dog with
0: the broom for a tail too when I was a kid. Like that really that really flipped me out. It's cause he didn't have a, eyes, right? Or does he?
1: Which one? I'm sorry, uh, the dog with the what? With the broom for the tail. Oh with the broom for the tail, yeah.
0: Good. He also has a broom for a face.
1: Yeah, broom for a face and yeah, I don't I don't know if he has an eyes or not.
0: Oh, no, I didn't he, like him. Yeah. Anyway, I I forget where we were, but
1: Yeah. Alright, well as we wind down, I had one last question for you here, um, and then I don't know if you had more that you wanted to say, but I was, I was wondering if you saw any other influences, uh, from, from this movie, which we, we kind of just talked about, like, there's not anything really as scattered, but, you know, I was noticing, uh, we watched, uh, Lion King just the other day, and I feel like I have to mention Lion. King in almost every episode that we do, (laughs) but uh, Lion King is very punny, like it is just full of puns everywhere, and I feel like a lot of that draws from from this time period and even you know the, the Lewis Carroll books and and then this movie, right? Or am I way off on that?
0: I don't have any, I haven't seen Lion King in many many years, so I don't remember it being punny. This this movie would seem to me to stand kind of alone in the Disney catalog. I I don't know that there's another one very much like it at all.
1: That may be true. Yeah. I don't know. Although it does, it has some, it's, there's, it stands alone, but it's, it's still obviously Disney. Like it's not so far out there that you'd be like, well, that's not it. You know, like, um, Uh, like the looks of the characters are very much in what is becoming the Disney style now. Uh, The, even the end, like I was noticing that like, you know, as she, um, as she wakes up and she's back with her sister, there's just that like choir of voices that comes in that just seems to end all these like Disney classic movies. There's that like, you know, you know what I'm talking about that you might have a I do. better way to yeah. describe it than I do. Oh, and do. it also
0: opens yeah. with a song like that, right? The Alice in Wonderland title song. Right.
1: Yeah. And so there's ways in which it, it fits the formula perfectly, but then there's other ways in which it it obviously deviates wildly from it. So
0: Well, hey, I have here a list of references to Alice in Wonderland in other Disney films. This is from Wikipedia. Donald in Math Magic Land. Did you ever watch that?
1: I have not seen that one, though.
0: Donald Duck dresses up as Alice. I have that on DVD. I haven't watched it. Uh, Bill the Lizard is one of Radigan's henchmen in The Great Mouse Detective. So I guess we know where Bill went. (laughs) Alice is on House of Mouse. Uh, The Mad Hatter and the March Hare in Bonkers, if you remember that show. Bill the Lizard, Tweedledum, Cheshire Cat, and the Doorknob are all in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I remember none of them being in that movie.
1: Oh, we didn't talk about the Doorknob. I, I love one it. good turn deserves another. Yeah, oh, he's just cute. He's a cute little guy. I liked him. Uh, I was wondering how hoop. much he reminded me of the Doorknob a little bit in uh, isn't isn't in uh, Mickey's Christmas Carol? Isn't there a Doorknob that talks as well, or is it the door knocker?
0: it's the door knocker, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Because it looks like, it turns into Marley's ghost, right?
1: Maybe so, yeah, they're in the same family. Uh,
0: Doorknobs and door knockers probably hang out together. I imagine so. No pun intended.
1: (laughs) Michael, this has been a lively discussion of this movie. Did you have more that you wanted to say that I I didn't get us to?
0: No, I think I've said more than enough, don't you? I think everybody's probably well, tired of me for another month.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I really, I, I love, love these conversations. So um, I look forward to Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that.
0: So when is the last time you watched Peter Pan?
1: Uh, it has not been that long. Peter okay. Pan has been somewhat recent for me, because I showed it to my kids. So Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, it hasn't been too long for me. How about for you?
0: uh yeah i I saw that a couple years ago i think but when i came back to it as an adult i was surprised by my reaction to it but we'll talk about all that next month
1: yeah i look forward to hearing what you have to say about it um i i i know that peter pan has its has its problems um (laughs) i'm I'm very aware of that but i i still enjoy it so i i look forward to talking to you about it um well, I was going to send a call out to our listeners on book recommendations. We're getting to a period in the Disney movies where uh, the the Walt Disney, The Triumph of the American Imagination by Neil Gabler is giving me less and less each month on the movies. I think as Walt Disney is moving away uh, from being a uh, – is intimately involved in the movies there's just less to say and then the other book which was actually recommended to me by one of our listeners uh the that i mentioned this episode hollywood cartoons american animation it's golden age uh we are running out of the golden age as well so if other people have book recommendations um please uh let me know um you can get get to me through either our email address uh, which is before they were live at gmail.com or you can find uh both Michael and I on Twitter. Uh, I'm at the underscore alt, excuse me. I'm at the underscore alt, and Michael is at Michael Farmer. Uh, Michael and I know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on. Uh, so thank you for choosing us and making it through these each month. Uh, we also want you to know that Before They Were Live is a proud member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kirsten Uh And in the words of the White Rabbit, there's no time to say hello. Goodbye.